0: Thank you, Nathan, for that wonderful, wonderful prayer. Uh, Battalion. So my son was involved in battalion. I think he got involved when he was around 13, and that meant that I needed to go camping and go out in the woods. And I wasn't necessarily excited about it initially because I didn't have the gear, but as I acquired the gear over time, I began to get more excited. But what I got the most excited about was watching the friendships form for my son and watching him dive into the word as he was part of the small groups and as he became a squad leader, actually giving, in a sense, two sermons uh, uh, to to the, the whole squad of battalion. There was probably at that point 60 guys and to watch him wrestle with the word of God and, 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 and deliver it. And today, uh, him and I were reminiscing as I was sharing my uh, preparation for the sermon, he's like, oh yeah, I remember that battalion sermon. And, and how hard it was. And so he had a, a great appreciation. And and I have developed a much greater appreciation in the two opportunities to preach for the pastors who stand up here and preach and the amount of time that it takes. As we look at diving into our, our sermon today, we're gonna to be looking at, it's gonna be um, Acts 3, 11 through 26. And I would just encourage you to look at it on your device. I know usually, what we do is we just look at it on the screen. But we're gonna be really tight to the text today. I'm gonna be exegeting this lengthy passage and the reason for that is there's so much there and and Peter is gonna deliver so much about who Jesus is and I believe it's gonna set you up for the rest of the book. The things that he's gonna talk about and that Luke draws out are gonna be so meaningful as we look at the rest of the book. And so, the text today is immediately after a great miracle has taken place, which, was, which we learned last week. A lame beggar at the gate to the temple called Beautiful has been healed in the name of Jesus and then has gone with Peter and John into the temple. And while going with them, he's rejoicing greatly, leaping and singing and praising God. We know the song. And a crowd rushes to them in the temple. And so we'll pick up our text now. And it's a long text. I think they said, let's, let's give Fred the longest text for any sermon in the book of Acts. So this one's really long. So, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astonished, ran towards them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and the righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And this name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance and did all- and as did also your your rulers, but what God foretold by the mar- mouth of all the prophets that His Christ would suffer, He has thus fulfilled. Repent therefore and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days, you are the son of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Let me pray. Father, as we have read this passage, as we've read what Luke has recorded of what Peter has said to the people, there is a lot there. Lord, help me to communicate it, but also help those who are listening to hear your word, to apply it to their lives, to love you more, and may you apply that to my life as well as I, as I preach, as I speak. May that be true in my own life. I pray in Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. You know, location has a lot to do with events that, that happen in our life, and it's no different here. You know, when we just read that, oh, they were outside the gate and then they went into the temple, it's just so dry. It doesn't really create a picture of what it looked like. But Solomon's portico, well, let me just say this, um, I'll just read what I have. The location of this event in the text is of significant importance as it helps us understand the courage and boldness which Peter demonstrates as he addresses the crowd of well over 5,000 people. The crowd could be as large as 20,000 people. This Solomon's portico or colonnade or porch was located in the wall around the temple. If we could put up that first slide. So you see the slide. You can see the size of the structure. It might have been the largest temple in the Roman world. The wall measured 1,500 feet across the front, and along the length of it, it was 900 to 1,000 feet. The wall, which looks pretty small there, it looks like a little Lego thing, about five Legos tall. The wall is 40 feet tall. So I don't know how tall the sanctuary is here, but I don't think it's 40 feet. And at the location of Solomon's portico, it's 40 feet wide. So in the center, you can see the center structure, there's the the temple. So this is the temple complex. In the center structure, you have the holy place, which is in front of the tall place. And then where it's really tall, you have the holy of holies. And that is estimated that it was 16 stories tall. So at least 160 feet tall is that structure. I never thought of it that high. Until I studied, I'd never looked that closely. I'd been to seminary, but I'd never read that anywhere. On the left, you see that covered kind of red structure running along the wall. It's called the Royal Stoa. This is the place where the Sanhedrin met. This is the place where Jesus would have been tried. This is the place where Jesus drove out the money changers and said, my house will be called the house of prayer but you have made it into a den of thieves. On the right in the back, you can kind of see, it looks like a a little mini castle, is the garrison. So attached to the temple, this is Herod's temple, attached to the temple was a garrison of soldiers. And you say, well, why were soldiers needed in, in the temple? It doesn't look that big. This temple, the temple grounds are 33 acres, 33 acres of land. You might say, "Well I can't visualize that. I'm not a farmer." Okay, how about a football field? So it's twenty five football fields in size, and during festivals and holidays, hundreds of thousands of people could be in the inside this structure. If we look at the next picture, it will help us it will help us see the inside. so in, on the inside, you have these rows of pillars. There are two rows of pillars in the middle, and then there's an, uh, a row of pillars on the outside, and then there's the wall. And so this is the place that we have 20,000 people rush, and Peter is going to give his, his message to them. And it's all going to happen while this lame person is clinging to Peter, hanging on to him. So let's take a deeper look at what happens well, he clung to Peter and John, all the people, so I'm reading from the text, this is in this is 11. Well, he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astonished, ran together to them in the portico called Solomons. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? I don't know about you, but I've never seen a lame person healed. And the reality is they knew that person. They walked by them, they saw him. But he's been healed, and they're utterly astonished. They are amazed because they've never seen it. And he says, Or why are you staring at us as though through by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. Before Peter addresses how he's healed, he clarifies it's not because he has any power or that he has lived more piously or godly than anyone else that this man is healed. This is significant as many people believed and even believe today that healings or miracles would happen or can happen if perhaps you could attain a secret knowledge, some power. So we see this in the Bible, we see it in Gnosticism, we see it in magic, we see it in witchcraft, they would be examples. They accused Jesus for healing in the power of Satan. He goes on, he says, if we have piety or, it's not because we have piety or or we've done a good deed that this miracle has taken place, might take place. The idea is that it's not karma, it's not karma that's taking place. Many at the time thought that it was because of sin that evil happened. They asked Jesus, who sinned? If someone could grab me a water, that would be great. Who sinned, this man or his parents? Sadly, many Christians today fall prey to this search for power or secret knowledge or belief that if only they were better, then God might act. Peter is saying, no, it's not our power, but it's the power of Jesus, it's the power of Jesus' name that has healed this man. Dane and I, we, we've been on staff with Crew, which is Campus Crusade for Christ, for 32 years. Well, I've been on staff 32 years, she, she not so long. Uh, one is enough, thank you. And one of the things we have gotten, gotten to do is travel. And one of the places we went right after the, the wall came down, the Berlin Wall, was we went to Russia. We were working with high school students at the time, and we took a group of high school students to go and speak in the high schools in Moscow. And as we went and spoke, neither of us spoke Russian. I knew a few words. You know, I can ask how much is that, and what day it is, or something like that. That's about all I remember. But um, as we went and spoke, we trained our students to be able to share the gospel, and they did a great job. They had pictures, and they shared about their family, but then they, then they shared the gospel, and so we had a translator, but as we, as we were there, I think we were there 10 days after we had shared for a couple days, we began to notice that whenever our translator began to, to talk about the gospel, that she kind of stuttered, and she was slow, and, and almost a little bit confused, and we began to you know dialogue with her and talk a little bit and one of the things that came out was that she had dabbled in in some sort of i don't know I don't I don't want to call it witchcraft but but anyhow she described it as she had a this spirit that kind of helped her know secret knowledge she'd be walking down a street and come to a corner and the spirit would tell her who the person was around the corner she'd go around the corner and there would be that person so the spirit tricked her into thinking that it had some kind of power. And I asked her, I said, has your life become better since this spirit has been attached to you? And she said, well it gives me comfort but I don't, have, I don't really have peace. I have comfort only because I like this secret knowledge or I like this knowledge. And our team encouraged her, one of the women on our team encouraged her to to pray in Jesus' name that this spirit would leave. And it took her a few days, but after about three days, she, she came back and, and she's like, I prayed that prayer and the spirit's gone, and I'm free. And uh, we, we're not positive she came to Christ, but it was interesting to watch her, someone who didn't even believe in Jesus, use that name, and in the spirit world, that spirit obeyed her. So we're gonna deal with God's servant. If you, conf- if you have the outline, we're looking at God's servant, and the first point is that, under God's servant, is that glorified, holy, and righteous. Glorified, holy, and righteous. Glorified, holy, and righteous one. But the question is, who is he? Peter provides five names for this person, and we want to discover why these names. Why do they, what do they mean? And, And what's the point that he's trying to convey to his audience? What's he moving his reader towards? The first, the first two are found in verse 13. If we're able to put that up, verse 13. Verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant. So the first point, glorified servant. Glorified servant uses two distinctions together that his audience was sure not to miss. The significance that Peter, of what Peter is referring to, he's referring to the suffering servant in Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. Verse 13 puts them together. And there's only one place in the Old Testament that I think you can find servant and glorified linked to a person. And it's in Isaiah 52, 13. The first verse in the most famous servant song of Isaiah, which reads, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted or glorified. The Greek word in Acts 3.13 for glorified and the word in Isaiah 52.3 for extolled or exalted are the same. Only the tense is different. One is future tense, one is past tense. For those of you that like the Greek, the word is Doc, D-O-X-A-Z-O, doxazo, which means to glorify, honor, or exalt. So the translator's got it right. In Isaiah 52, 13, it is in the, in the last servant song, which is the fourth one. It emph- its emphasis is upon the suffering of the Lord's servant, but ultimate triumph. Clearly, Peter means for the hearers to have the servant in Isaiah 52, and 53 in mind. And the prophecies in Isaiah would have been very familiar with his audience. These are Jews that are at the temple. God records for us in Matthew 12 that Jesus is a fulfillment of the servant of the Lord in Isaiah when he quotes in Isaiah 42, the first of the four servant songs. So this is in Matthew 12 and he's quoting from Isaiah 42. And this is what he reads. This is from Matthew 12, verse, verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, and whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And we're gonna see that lived out in Acts. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. There are four servant psalms. If I gave you a little quiz and asked you, you what they were about or where they were, if you're like me, I wouldn't be able to tell you. I'd just say they're at the end of Isaiah somewhere. But here's where, here's where they are. Isaiah 42 is the introduction to the servant. Isaiah 40, 49 Deals with the servant's work in the world and his success. Isaiah 50 deals with Israel's sin compared to the servant's obedience. And we just looked at 52 and 53. It's a servant of the Lord as suffering and the righteous one who will triumph. Peter gives us three more titles of his servant in verse 14. And he says this in verse 14. He says, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. The titles that we looked at so far, we looked at glorified servant, so that would be my first point if you're following along under that first heading, but we have three more here, holy one, righteous one, and author of life, and so we're going to look at each, each one of those three and see what they mean. Jesus as the Holy One, which by the way is is also a messianic title. Peter draws upon two well-known scriptures or sections of scriptures to establish this idea of Holy One. And this would have been again very familiar in their mind. The first is in Isaiah. Holy One is used 28 times in connection to God. God is called the Holy One over and over and over again in Isaiah, almost from beginning to end, from the first chapter to the end. And if he's referring to this, perhaps it would it would imply um, Jesus' deity. This is probably not what Peter has in mind here, though. Peter, in his first sermon in Acts 2, also referenced the Holy One, which I think we looked at maybe two weeks ago. It's in David's psalm, it's in 16, and he quotes... You, meaning God, will not let your Holy One see corruption. So Peter confidently puts forward that the Holy One David spoke of is the, is the Messiah, Christ, the Anointed One. And Luke's, Luke is the author of Acts, and Luke was also the author, author of Luke. And even, even demons knew the Holy One. In Acts 4.34, he records... He records their response. He says, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? And and I just picture a demon like in some altered voice I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Well, why does a demon know who he is? Well, a demon is an angel, a demon is a fallen angel. They're beautiful and magnificent. They were there, they were there when when Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was in heaven. They saw him, they heard him, they may have even met him. They knew who he was. The next word he talks about is the righteous one, which is also a messianic title. And it comes from, again, the famous sermon song in Isaiah 53. This is one of a few places you find righteous one in scripture, and I think the only place connected to the Lord's servant. Here it is in context. This is in Isaiah 52, 11, and I'll just read it. Out of anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, so there it is, the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities therefore I will divide him a portion with with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong you're like why are you reading all this really is to get to this, this next verse because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors and we see this fulfilled Jesus was killed between thieves Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors, which is exactly the point that Peter is going to make and is making here in Acts. The servant makes intercession like a priest, like a priest would, but he also bore their sin, meaning he takes their sin upon himself as he poured out his soul to the point of death. He becomes a sacrifice for my sin, for your sin for the sins of the world. But his death is only effective for those who put their faith in him. And that's what we see Peter saying, in his name, in his name, it's by his name. The next title we look at is Author of Life. And this comes from the Greek word, akiagos, which is composed of two words. The first, ake, meaning origin, the beginning of all things, or first in place like a king, So they're saying this about Jesus, that Jesus is the author of life, that he's the origin of life. And the second, ago, means to lead or to bring. So if you put the two together, really what this word is saying is that Jesus is the one who brings us life, meaning in the very beginning. And we see that certainly in John 1, right? All things were created by him and for him, and nothing was made that has been made without him. Jesus is the one who who now brings life to those who are spiritually dead, he makes alive. If you're still not convinced that Jesus is the Messiah that God prophesied about, Peter puts it out there, and we're going to look at verse 18. He puts it out there very plainly. I'll wait for that to come up for you. There it is. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Christ in the Greek trans- is a Greek translation of Messiah. So, you know, at the time of Jesus, everyone was looking. Everyone was looking for, for the Messiah. That's why when Jesus calls his first disciples, they ask, could this be the Messiah? And they say, come and see. Often, I work with international students, and I'll, I'll ask a, a, a Muslim, was anybody looking for the coming of Muhammad? No, no one was looking. Was anyone looking for the coming of, you know, let's say Krishna who in, in the Hindu faith or the coming of Buddha? No, no one was looking. These guys just showed up. You know, we, we have the Jehovah Witnesses now, Charles Taz Russell. Was anybody looking for him? Was anybody looking for Joseph Smith? No, nobody. He's the Mormon, founder of the Mormons. No one was looking. But everyone in, in Israel was looking for the, the coming of the Messiah, Messiah is the anointed one of God, and Peter's claim that Jesus is indeed the long-awaited Messiah is strong. There's only one problem, we have rejected him. That brings us to the second point, rejected by man. We're gonna look at seven points. So as we read along, we'll see that there are seven points. So I wanna reread the text, now that we have a fuller understanding of who Jesus is, and who they're rejecting. Remember those, some of those titles. Remember that, it's, that he's a fulfillment of the suffering servant in Isaiah. So let's read the text, beginning in verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. First, first point: Under rejected by man, they handed Jesus over to Rome. Secondly, they denied Jesus, and and I want to note that this is the first denial that we're going to see in these, in these in these couple uh, verses, verse 14. But you denied the holy and righteous one. So there it is again, the holy and righteous one, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. So third point, they ask for a murderer. And notice they denied him a second time. Verse 15, and you kill the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Fourth point, they killed him. Rejected by man, fourth point, they killed him. And one could argue that they, by killing him, they denied him for a third time. I, I think Peter knows something about denying the Lord as he denied him three times. Peter places upon them Jesus blood. They killed him. Not just the rulers, but it was but it was them. It is us. In a sense what this is saying is that we were there and we killed Jesus as well. They asked for Barabbas a murderer instead of the holy and the righteous one. The one that God took pains to to explain in Isaiah and other places in the scripture, in the Psalms and And in Deuteronomy, it's always a bummer when you lose your place. Okay, I'm going to find it here. Okay, verse 16, so we're going to go on. And this Jesus, by faith in his name, I just want to read this part because it just flows in the text has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this, given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. Fifth point, they acted in ignorance. Verse 18. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Again, pointing the fulfillment of of prophecy, verse 19: Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. God calls them to repent, that their sins might be blotted out. This mean word means be wiped away. So the sixth point: Ignorance is no excuse. He's still calling them to repent, even though they were ignorant of what they did. He's saying you were guilty, even though you were ignorant of what happened. And they're guilty because they have sin and that sin must be repented of. It must be blotted out. It must be wiped away. He says, come to faith in the name of Jesus. Ink had a problem in the first century and the problem was water. Ink could be wiped off paper by, by wiping the page with a damp cloth, kind of like, kind of like a whiteboard. you know. Every now and then you use a permanent marker and I'm always like, man, what a bummer. But a whiteboard, if you take a a rag, you don't even need to wet it. You can wipe it off. But ink with a damp rag, you could wipe it off. You could wipe it off the paper, let the paper dry and be able to reuse the paper. Eventually acid was added to ink and it solved the problem. But they understood the imagery. Their sins, written in a book, recorded before God. God. They needed to be removed. They needed to be blotted out. They needed to be wiped away. They're warned in verse 23. If they will not listen to Jesus' words, they will face judgment and be completely destroyed by the judgment of God. And the seventh and last point is God's refreshing. God's refreshing for those who repent verse 30 that times i'm sorry verse 20 that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the lord and that he may send the christ appointed for you jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring of all things about which god spoke by the mouth of the prophets long ago he calls them to repent that the times of refreshing will come and this is this is a one of those phrases in the bible that it's just really hard to get your head completely around because we don't know exactly what this time of refreshing says. One commentator says, quote, no verbal parallels to this expression, times of refreshing, have been found in scripture. Though the noun is used in Exodus 8.15 to describe the relief from God's judgment experienced by the Egyptians, end quote. This blessing may have been cumulative, meaning we are blessed now and will be in the future, It could also point to the Holy Spirit being new life and Jesus' teaching that we will have springs of living water within us. Certainly a picture of refreshment in an arid place. Another possibility is that we are now refreshed because we have entered God's rest. We have entered God's rest and we see that pictured for us in the scripture. The third point is vindicated by God. So we see that Jesus is killed, that he's put forward and he's killed. But the first point under vindicated by God is that God raised Jesus to life. The scripture says you killed him, but God had favor upon him by raising him to life. So we see Jesus is vindicated. So God raises Jesus to life. Second point, God's servant is sufficient to offer forgiveness of sin and blot out transgressions. Because, as Peter has already said, he's the glorified servant. He's the righteous one. He is the holy one. He's the author of life. If someone charged God for not having a just cause to blot out our sin, he would be vindicated because of his servant Jesus. His servant Jesus was holy and blameless without sin And then the next point, prophecy fulfilled. What God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that his Christ would suffer and who his Christ would be, he has fulfilled. He did it through the servant psalm of Isaiah. And we're gonna see in a moment through the prophecy in Moses. And then in this passage, Samuel is also referenced. We've also seen that that he mentions David as the holy one. And then even through the patriarchs. Again, if we argued, God, you did not tell us who the Messiah would be. Peter has explained how the fulfillment through the servant songs of Isaiah and the Psalm of David. Peter's not done, he has three more examples that he has for us. So verse 22, I did mention that we'd be staying close to the text. When a text has this much information, it's really hard to just say, well, this and this and follow. And so this this is exegetical teaching. This is trying to go verse by verse through the text and saying, what did God really say? What was he trying to communicate? What's 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 the theme of the argument that's being laid out? Verse 22, Moses said, the Lord of God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him who proclaim these days so Peter puts forward two prophets he puts forward Samuel and he puts forward Moses now Moses is probably the most famous prophet of all because he delivered the law God worked through him to bring about the law And he prophesied in Deuteronomy 18 that a future prophet will arise, and Jesus is that prophet. In the second prophet, Samuel is referenced. He anointed King Saul and King David, but comes to represent all the prophets from then on. So basically, there's Moses, and then there's Samuel and the prophets. And they, they begin with Samuel and the prophets, because he was the first major prophet after Moses, so why does Peter reference, reference these two individuals, and Samuel in particular? So it could be that we have here a prophet and king. So in other words, Moses was the great prophet, and by referencing Samuel, he's actually alluding to Samuel was the one that he was told to go and anoint, to anoint Saul. And then he was told to go and anoint David because God had removed his blessing from Saul and he needed to go and anoint David. And in Isaiah, which we've already looked at, we have Jesus, or we have this servant who who is like a a priest, right? Because he makes intercession for sin. He, He bears our sin. So here we perhaps have the threefold office and are represented, prophet, priest, and king. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 23 asks, what offices does Christ execute as redeemer? And the answer is, Christ as our redeemer executes the office of prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. Humiliation meaning when he he was crushed, and exaltation meaning now as he's at the right hand of God. The servant of Isaiah represents the office of priest. Moses, the office of prophet. And Samuel represents the office of king. Another possibility for why Samuel might be, found in the, might be the prophet that's chosen is found in the following phrase in verse 25. We can bring verse 25 up. And it says, you are the sons of the prophets. Now, if I said, you are the sons of the prophets, like if I said, you are the son of a prophet, you'd be like, you're weird, dude. There's something to matter with you. But the sons of the prophets in Elisha's time were a group of prophets that recognized that God had prophesied that there would be a change from Elijah to Elisha. Remember that change? God says to Elijah... I want you to go and, and, and anoint Elisha to take your place. They were also faithful to Israel. Most prophets at the time had deserted God, but they were faithful and followed God's prophecy, God's word and God's prophet. Peter is calling the listeners this very enduring, endearing and honorable name. You are the sons of the prophets, The sons of the prophets saw God, saw what God was doing, and did not follow their leaders into idolatry. They stayed true to God and recognized God's anointed one, his prophet. The Messiah's prophet is prophesied by God's prophets in the sacred word, and also by God's current prophet, Peter, by by whom God has just performed a miracle, just like Elisha, who also healed. So he says to them, perhaps he cried out, You sons of the prophets, don't miss that Jesus is the Messiah, is what Peter is saying. And Luke doesn't want us to miss it. He wants us to be encouraged that God has fulfilled what he promised long ago. Peter concludes his argument as he started, by pointing them to the patriarch's covenant that God made with their fathers. Verse 25, very good. Saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. The promise is that in your offspring, the whole earth will be blessed. Many thought this was through the whole nation of Israel at the time, the Jews. But there, but here it is narrowed down to one person, God's servant from Isaiah. Offspring, or seed, is in the singular, meaning one. It's not in the plural. Paul affirms this meaning of Christ in Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, into offspring. Or it could read, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his seed, and it does not say to seeds. Referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. How did they respond to this powerful message? You know, we we might only have a sliver of the message, because he showed up around three o'clock, and then we're told later he leaves in the evening. Peter, he put forward, he was put forward in a moment's notice, right? He had to put forward his powerful argument in just a moment's notice. He was ready in season and out of season to to present a defense for why he believed. You might be asking, okay, well, what happened? 20,000 people are there, what happened? Cut to the chase, get to the end of the story. In Acts 4, one through four, I don't think we have a slide for it, but it says As they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. It's not a happy ending. But verse 4 says, But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. 5,000 people believed. God poured out his spirit, and 5,000 people believed. The leaders were upset by the gospel and made it difficult for the church. And Rome was a political mess. And true, some did not believe, but 5,000 believed. Peter was an unlearned man, and yet he stands up and he preaches this amazing sermon, and 5,000 are converted because the Holy Spirit comes and changes people's lives. He didn't know who it would be. He could have said, oh, I just healed this beggar, and he kept going, because he was probably heading somewhere. I don't know what he was going to do. I don't remember if the text tells us or not. So Peter has laid out a strong argument for why Jesus is the Messiah and 5,000 people agreed with him. He's the promised one of God, the one who can blot out our sin when we have believed in his name, in the name of Jesus, and we repent. Jesus is God's promised one to pay for our sin. If you don't believe today, today can be the day of salvation for you. Receive Christ as your Savior. Say, Jesus, you have died for my sins, and I receive your gift. And become a child of God today. For those of us who believe, I think there's three applications. And we'll be blessed, and I believe that we'll be happy if we apply all three of these to our life. Know the word so that you can give a defense of the gospel. If you don't know it, or even if you know it, get in God's word. This is a great time to do it. Learn his word. Two, be encouraged in your faith that God has fulfilled his promises and will continue to do so. Just like he did in the past, he will do it in the future. The promise is that Christ will come again. The promise is that Christ is with you. Always. The last time I preached, what I talked about was that Christ is with you. Wherever you go, Christ is with you. And three, the mission has not changed regardless of the political mess of the time. We are called to make Christ known, even if it's uncomfortable. Imagine how uncomfortable this would have been for Peter. The first time he preached, and the second time, he, he did this with a person hanging on him the whole time. And five to 20,000 people pressed all around him. Kind of chaos. And as you share the gospel, trust in the Holy Spirit to change hearts and to bring, bring people to repentance. As we go to a time of prayer, I'm going to give you a moment to just say, Lord, what, what did you have for me in this, in this sermon today? And then I'm going to pray. So, Father, as we come in this moment, speak to us, Holy Spirit. Sear in our hearts, our minds, what you would have us to take away. Lord, whatever you've put in people's minds, I pray that it become a reality in their lives, whether it's repenting and turning to you. Of course, we always need to be re- to repent, and repentance is, is that continual turning to you. Yes, it's uh, our desire to put away sin, but it's more importantly, it's our turning to you. And that repentance is open to us, that you haven't closed that off. Lord, if we know you and we're away from you, Lord, we can come and we can, we can, we can know you. We can know you more. Forgiveness is is already granted to us and we can experience forgiveness as we confess our sins, which is nothing more than agreeing that we have sinned before you and that you have forgiven us. Father, let us leave different people than, than how we came, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.